You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 104. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! How are you? What's up? Alrighty, guys. Not bad, What's not bad. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Feels like forever. How was, how was Mexico? Mexico was amazing. Thank you. Um, it was very nice and warm, 28 degrees. And then I landed in London into a zero degree weather. Not happy. <laughs> um, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad mm-hmm. to be recording with you. Yet another wonderful episode. Um, glad to have you back. Yeah. How do you know it's going to be wonderful? It's going to be uh, wonderful. All our episodes are wonderful. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's true. That's true. They're all wonderful, yeah. but some more wonderful than others. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. All yeah. right. Okay. That's, that sounds, sounds yeah, reasonable. No, but we actually have two very good interviews coming up on, on this show. Mm-hmm. One about, uh, you know, truth and why it's important to speak the truth. And one about why Jesus did not exist. So yeah. I think we're going uh, from very... Different topics, but it's... Uh, but I, somehow I see the connection. I also oh. do, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about it as Pontus was talking, uh, saying, if we're talking yeah. about the truth, did Jesus really exist, really? Um, yeah. But it's a, yeah, good conversation. Yeah. All right. <laughs> good conversation well, starter with your, with your religious relatives, guys, for your Christmas. Yes, exactly. So this is to prepare you all. But before we go into that, I need to comment on our last episode. Okay. And and this is actually something I've been looking forward to ever since we started a podcast. I want (laughs) to give myself a very special, really wrong prize. Okay. And you were there and you listened and you should have caught me doing this. Okay. What? Because I said... You assumed we were listening. Yeah, maybe that's the problem. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you got got us. You got us. For the the listeners who didn't listen and for, for the two of you... I will tell you what I said. I said that <laughs> I said that the vaccination rate for HPV in Japan was less than zero. That means that I, I remember actually that. But <laughs> that I means that there are more people. Want... There are yeah. more people in Japan who is not vaccinated than there are people in Japan. <laughs> you should have caught that. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, what is Pontus talking about? He must know what he's talking about. So, so I maybe... said that, and I said it twice. I remember that, Pontus. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing about this is that I edited the show and I had I did not spot that. No. So, <laughs> so my, I've, oh God. I've gone back. I've gone back and checked my notes. And my notes doesn't say less than zero. It says close to zero. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, it's bad in Japan about the HPV vaccinations, but it's not that bad as it's below zero. It's uh, close to zero. Well, I want to just, in your defense, Pontus, not that you need a defense. Um, I do. <laughs> uh, English is not your first language. And so that's an understandable maybe error to make. And also, you see me knowing you thinking, 
Pontus know what he's talking about? If he's saying less than zero, it must be less than zero. I'm very convincing. <laughs> and I, th I think it's not, I know the difference between less yeah. than and close to. I, I, I'm not that bad. But you know, you know, Yalana, that was a special case of our argument f from yeah. authority. So Absolute that's... logical fallacy that we talked about. Mm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anyway, just to get that out of the way, I know I said something wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, and I will probably fuck up again sometime, but not today, I hope. <laughs> but very cheerfully. <laughs> I think it'll be relatively hard to fuck up during the interview, but we'll see. We'll you see. Never know. Why? You know, Why not? Oh, yeah. if, if any listeners will notice Pontus or yeah. Andres. You know, in the last two years of us doing these interviews, I've learned something very important about doing interviews, is that you can fuck it up by not asking the right questions. How many times have we thought, after we did the interview, when we were listening to it, I went, oh, shoot, we should have asked that and that yeah. and that no. and that. And, yeah. and we just we just missed it, missed the yeah. opportunity. Well, that's exactly what happened to, to us when we were interviewing um, one of the guys on the show, David Fitzgerald. As soon as we finished, I'm like, oh, we should have asked him this, this. And yeah. it was too late. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that's just leaving it open for leaving it open to get a reason to to invite them back yeah so, so yeah. It's a, yeah so we do it on purpose and it's and, <laughs> and especially strange because we've always uh always really prepared for our interviews by by putting together all the questions and 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 trying to organize it somewhat but but still um, on the go, on the fly, it's, there is there are lots of things emerging and coming up, and then only only yeah. when you, you you're done with it, that's when you realize that oh my god, there have been a lot of things that I should have asked. Yeah. We, we're still learning this, and uh, and we're gonna keep doing it because not not only because we want to learn it, <laughs> but we want to profess <laughs> in this, but uh, but there are so many interesting people doing so many intriguing stuff. Yeah. So. Shall we Speaking actually which, yeah, yeah, shall we actually crack on with these two um interviews? I think so. Let's do this. So first we'll uh listen to this interview with uh Gleb Tsipurski talking about why and how we can do basically everything sticking to the need to to, to tell the truth mm -hmm. and taking the pledge mm -hmm. of telling the truth. The truth pledge, yeah. Then we're going to move on to the interview with David Fitzgerald, talking about and writing and giving talks about why Jesus probably has never existed. Hmm. Very good. Indeed. Yeah. So I hope you'll all enjoy these two interviews. Let's crack on with them. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, our guest is disaster avoidance expert Dr. Gleb Tsipurski, who is an assistant professor at Ohio State University and also the author of four books, including The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. He's an experienced public speaker on topics like fighting fake news and post-truth politics, and he's a co-founder of the Pro-Truth Pledge. Gleb, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be on with you. Great to have you here. Well, unfortunately, Yelena cannot be with us today. And um, it's been quite a bumpy road till, uh, till we actually, actually got 
into this moment of recording the, uh, the interview. So let's crack on with it. <laughs> so first of all, I think the the question that is the most burning one is, what the heck does a disaster avoidance expert do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to help people in individuals, organizations, and our society as a whole avoid disaster. And disaster usually comes from either one or most likely a series of bad decisions. And these bad decisions usually result from us having false beliefs, believing in lies, believing in deceptions, fooling ourselves, fooling others, being fooled by others. So that's why a lot of my work has to do with helping people see reality clearly. So how do individuals avoid the kind of cognitive biases, which is mm -hmm. in psychology a term for thinking errors that we have that cause us to see reality unclearly and deceive ourselves? And how do we help others around us have a clear vision of reality? Also, that we can make good decisions and avoid the kind of disasters that come from bad decisions. Yeah. Maybe you should go also into a little bit of your background, where you come from, and what what your uh, uh, how you came to to focus on this. Also mentioning what, the country you're from, because I, I gather your your name suggests that it's it's somewhat Eastern European or absolutely. I came from Moldova, so my parents were born in Moldova, and uh, no, my parents weren't born in Moldova. I was born in Moldova, and my parents were there in Chisinau, Moldova, which is just east of Romania and just southwest of Ukraine. So I was born there and my parents immigrated when I was 10 to the United States. So I grew up in New York City, a metropolitan, very central metropolitan place. And I moved around from New York to Boston to Chapel Hill and ended up in Ohio at Columbus. Mm -hmm. So where I teach at Ohio State University, where I research and teach. And so I was always interested in why people make bad decisions. From my early teenage childhood years, I saw people making bad decisions all around me. My parents were making bad decisions. Businesses around me were making bad decisions. Society, people were making bad decisions in politics. And I always really cared about that because I saw people suffer as a result of bad decisions. And I'm really driven by addressing suffering. So that's why I got into the field that I got, the history of behavioral science, looking at combining history, psychology, politics, behavioral economics, and other things to understand why people make these bad decisions and how to prevent that. Yeah. So that's kind of a little bit about my background. About three and a half years ago, I co-founded a nonprofit called Intentional Insights to promote and popularize the research on how do we see reality clearly. How can we avoid bad decisions? That's been the focus of my activism. And uh, I've always been a skeptic. I ran a skeptic club in uh, my college. So that's kind of my background in the skeptic movement. It correlates very well with seeing reality clearly and making good decisions. So that's just a little bit about me and what I care about. So did you find a way for yourself also to not to make bad decisions? I, I guess it's not pe just people around you. You you know, everybody's human. So I guess you, or at least you fought, fought 
the, the you try to not make bad decisions yourself absolutely uh i definitely try to not make bad decisions myself and it's something that <laughs> we all have to struggle with so uh here we can get into some of the cognitive biases that cause to make bad decisions so again cognitive biases people can look it up there's a good wikipedia list of over a hundred cognitive biases which are human thinking errors that cause us to make bad decisions one of the cognitive biases each of us is prey to a different variety of cognitive biases. One of the things that I tend to fall for is optimism bias, which means being too optimistic about the future. So I have to struggle with that every day. I have to think that, no, decrease my expectations, be more pessimistic about various outcomes, build in extra resources to accomplish tasks. Think I recognize that many initiatives that I take on will not be as successful as I want them to be. And so because I have learned that about myself and the research, I much more effectively plan in extra resources and extra time to accomplish various tasks, which otherwise would end up in disasters if I just thought all my things would go well. And so many people have disastrous consequences from thinking that things will go fine and not building in extra resources, people who suffer from optimism bias. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of how I apply this to my life and of course there are so many other areas which I can go into yeah. uh, about how I apply this to my life it's yeah. a very important area of research and practice so, so one one way to avoid these errors is to learn about these logical biases and learn to recognize them with yourself mm -hmm. is that the main a main way to to avoid bad decisions or are there others as well I would say that that's the main way to avoid bad decisions if you want to be thorough about actually doing it. Now, there are others. One of the other ways is to follow certain practices, follow certain behaviors that would lead to people avoiding these bad decisions. So you don't have to know about these biases and learn about them and strategize. You could just follow a checklist. So, for example, Hospitals have recently been instituting checklists, such as having doctors wash their hands and having nurses wash their hands before they go into patients and so on. And that's been a major revolution in the medical field that has resulted in a decrease in uh, deaths caused by medical care by about 40% in the United States alone. So, and this is things like washing your hands. It sounds ridiculous, kind of why would you, you know, think that uh, having a doctor wash his hands, wouldn't it be automatic? It's not. People make these mistakes all the time. And so just having these checklists and having people follow certain behaviors that experts create, these checklists, results in a huge decrease in disasters, in this case, people dying mm. who go to hospitals. So yes, uh, you can do that as well. Otherwise, we're just back to square one, like uh, Samwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes. um, you wrote several books, and we specifically mentioned the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide. So when we're talking about seeking the truth, what are we talking about? So uh, we, we do know that uh, the market is full of those self-help guides and how you should live your life. So... Is this actually what you wrote about uh, in the book that you just mentioned? Sure. I wrote about the book is focused on how do we avoid these cognitive biases, thinking errors that prevent us 
from seeing reality clearly. That's the focus of the book. It's not kind of it's not prescriptive in terms of here are the behaviors that you need to follow. It's not a checklist. It's about people who are actually interested in learning about these things that prevent them from seeing reality clearly. For example, we as human beings are not evolved to see reality clearly. That's just not what our evolution is optimized for. So we have we are evolved for the savanna environment, for surviving in small groups and tribes uh, with a small amount of people around us. We're not involved evolved for the contemporary digital world, for dealing with social media, for dealing with large corporate structures in which many people have to work, for dealing with so many other things. The flood of information coming at us every day is so much larger than our ancestors ancestors had to deal with. We're just not prepared for that. And so because we're not prepared for that, the kind of brain we have is not really well adapted for dealing with the modern world, which results in us making lots of mistakes. So how do we address these mistakes so that we don't lie to ourselves and that we figure these things out? One of the, th- one of the basic biases, cognitive biases, is the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for and interpret information in ways that it goes along with our current beliefs. We don't tend to change our minds. It feels very uncomfortable to change our minds. It feels like we're losing when we change our minds. And so people tend to not change their minds because of these gut intuitions, these gut reactions. And that is a big problem, one of the biggest problems in our society. And so that's one of the things I talk about. I talk about many other things about how we as individuals can address these problems within ourselves. This is something that every skeptic should know about and every skeptic should practice in order to not lie to ourselves. And that's one. The second thing is how do we guide other people around us to avoid these errors? Once we know about them, what are strategies that we can use to guide other people around us? I'm going to stop here and see if you have questions about this part before talking about other people. Um, one of my first encounters with uh, with the idea of uh, cognitive dissonance and uh, how how we 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 don't like to change our minds and accept that that um, and actually we we always try to avoid admitting our mistakes. There are lots of political examples in that book. So do you use those examples as well, or do you do you try to link that to present day politics and and what you do? Um, you you give quite a lot of uh, talks on how to fight fake news and post truth politics. So how does what you do connect to to all that we experience in the media, in in social media and everywhere these days in the post-truth era? Yeah, so to answer the first part of your question, I deal with the whole area of life activities that we human beings experience. Okay. How do we deal uh, with relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't, we seek confirmatory evidence, not simply in politics but in relationships you know how do we know that the people who we care about care about us and uh, that how do we not lie to ourselves in relationships that's one area how do we not lie to ourselves in professional activities in our businesses i'm often hired by companies as a consultant to go in there and help them address various self-deceptions that companies suffer from 
which is often referred to as tax culture. So the toxic culture of a company where everyone just lies their way and the people at the top don't have any actual, actual information about what's happening on the ground level because people are not incentivized to tell the truth and they shoot the messenger who uh, gives them information that's negative. That's horrible for a company's performance, and that creates toxic culture. That's really bad. And, of course, in politics is a major area of my activities. How do you fight fake news and deceptions in politics? How do you train and encourage people to avoid just believing what they hear from people on their side? How do you avoid the echo chamber of reinforcing previous perspectives. So there's really good research showing that if you only engage with people on your own side, on your own perspective, you will become more and more polarized. You won't stay where you are. You will be, move more left or more right, whatever you happen to be, if you just engage with people with your own perspective. So how do you prevent this echo chamber thing? How do you prevent people from sharing fake news? You know, if you look at uh, fake news sharing, just at the 2016 election, let's say in the United States, there was a study that showed that there were something like the top 20 fake news stories related to elections were shared about 8 million times and engaged with about 8 million times on Facebook, while the top 20 real news stories related to the election were engaged with about 7 million times on Facebook. So fake news stories are beginning to predominate over real news stories. How do you prevent that? So those are all topics I cover in the book, and that's so that it addresses all of these things. Mm. It it seems to me that this this is a huge area, uh, and I you know just by thinking here, I, I try to narrow it down to three categories. And so one is to identify self deception when you lie to yourself and prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. Then there is the the fight to not wanting to lie deliberately to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third one is to identify when others are lying to us. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair breakdown of the big problem or is it too simplified? The, I would add a fourth component, yeah? encouraging other people to stop lying. Uh, okay. How do you do that? So that's kind of a fourth component yeah. of my work. How do you change and encourage other people to update their beliefs? as opposed to lying. So this is all has to do with becoming more civilized people as opposed to natural people. You know, we naturally, we don't, uh, we won't naturally lie. That's a very intuitive, that's a very human thing to do. That's a very instinctive thing to do. Just like it's very instinctive to eat with our hands, <laughs> it's a very instinctive thing to do, yeah. to uh, self-gratification and so on. All of these are instinctive things to do. As adults, as civilized people, we learn to delay gratification. We learn to read. We learn to do these things that are not natural, that are hallmarks of civilized people. So it's not a very natural or intuitive thing at all to read. It's not a very natural or intuitive thing at all to eat with our hands. These are things we have to be taught to do. Uh, it's not instinctive at all. So it's instinctive to gratify ourselves as opposed to delay gratification. Delaying gratification is one of the hallmarks of civilization. Unfortunately, we're not taught to delay gratification in the realm of lying. <laughs> we're not taught to really think critically and evaluate information critically. As human beings, research shows that whenever we get information, we intuitively believe it. The first thing we do when we see information 
is we believe it, we accept it. We have to be trained to be critical, to be skeptical of it. And your listeners, who tend to be more skeptical, have been trained to be skeptical. But of course, many people around them are not trained that way. So how do you guide, first of all, develop the skepticism in yourself and apply it to all areas of life? And then how do you develop the skepticism in others and encourage them to be more skeptical. This is a very difficult thing to do, but a very necessary one in order to fight fake news, post-truth politics, and also just deception in companies, deception in relationships in all areas of life. Is this where we come into the pro-truth pledge? Uh, Can you tell us what that is and what's the purpose? Who should join? Mm -hmm. Why is it a good thing? I mean, I I think we realize why it's a good thing, but please tell us more about that. Sure. So the pro-truth pledge at protruthpledge.org is a movement to fight fake news and post-truth politics in our public discourse. And this is something that everyone should join who cares about truth and facts. So you can all join by going to protruthpledge.org and going to the top right, take the pledge button. This is for private citizens and public figures alike. And the aim, the pro-truth pledge is 12 behaviors that are the research and behavioral science shows are clearly correlated with truthfulness. And it's going to be obvious to everyone that they're clear correlated with truthfulness. So I'm going to read a few of them. So fact check information to confirm it's true before accepting and sharing it. Share my sources so that others can verify my information. Reevaluate if my information is challenged and retract it if I can't verify it. Ask people to retract information with reliable sources I've disproved, even if those people are my allies. And celebrate those who retract incorrect statements and update their beliefs toward the truth. And there are, uh, so that's five, and there are seven more behaviors like this. Twelve behaviors that in total are, is a condensed version of all the research on what it means to be truthful and what we can do to encourage others to be truthful. And so we combine behavioral science with crowdsourcing. So the more private citizens take the pro-truth pledge, the more incentive public figures like politicians and journalists and CEOs and nonprofit executives and community leaders have to take the pro-truth pledge. The more private citizens take it, the more public figures will take it. And the public figures who take the pledge are held accountable by private citizens who take the pledge. So there is a clear accountability mechanism for public figures, which we can talk about. The point of the pro-truth pledge is to give credibility to the public figures who take the pledge by having a mass amount of private citizens take the pledge, support it, and pay attention to it. So it's kind of like the Better Business Bureau for public figures, where it's a marker, it's a seal of approval. Public figures who take the pledge can have the Pro-Truth Pledge website seal on their website and the social media and on their social media as well. And private citizens who take it can have the same things. It's a marker of approval. It's a marker. It's a stamp of credibility. So the more private citizens take it, the more credibility it will give to public figures who take it. It's a virtuous self-reinforcing cycle, which is the best kind of mechanism from what the research in behavioral science shows about how we actually address the sort of tragic problem that uh, fake news and post-truth politics 
is breaking. So you say you can do you can take the pro truth pledge uh, as a as a private citizen, as a as a public figure, but also as an organization, right? And as a government mm-hmm. or a government officials also sign up for this. That's right. Yeah. So all sorts of so organizations we all we all consider that as part of the public figures. So public figures, uh, government officials, and organizations can all take the pro-truth pledge. So a number of skeptic organizations have taken the pro-truth pledge. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, the United Coalition of Reason. Outside of the United States, uh, there are a number of the Spanish skeptic organization has taken the pro-truth pledge. I forget what it's called. So, And there are a number of other organizations. So public figures outside the United States would include people like Gary McClelland, the leader of the International Humanist Ethical Union, and plenty of other public figures outside the United States who are in the skeptic movement, as well as people who are not in the skeptic movement. So in uh, there's a prominent religious figure in France, Episcopal Bishop Pierre Whelan, who has taken the pro-truth pledge, for example. So it reaches outside the skeptic movement, which is what we need to do in order to fight fake news and post-truth politics, is to make it a very broad-based movement uniting all kinds of people who care about the facts. So anyone who cares about fixing our broken system of public information should go to protruthpledge.org and take the pledge. And it's also available for non-English-speaking communities, right? That's right. So we're aiming to translate the pledge into all languages that we can. So it's currently translated into Spanish, Hungarian, Russian, Ukrainian, Portuguese, and German. The French translation and Greek translation are on the way as well. Oh, and the Dutch translation. Mm-hmm. That's very nice. It's a pan-European project. <laughs> it is. Uh, we have people who are working out uh, all around the globe, including, of course, in Europe. So we have people, and if anyone, if any of your listeners would like to translate the pledge into one of the languages that's not currently listed or that I haven't mentioned, I would welcome them to contact me at gleb, G-L-E-B, at intentionalinsights.org and let me know they are willing to translate it. So what happens if someone takes the pledge and they are caught telling a lie or or saying or making claims that are not substantiated by, by fact? What happens then? So for people who are in the protruthpledge.org website currently, you can go to the third FAQ, which is called How Are Pledge Takers Held Accountable? So if pledge takers make a mistake by sharing something false, we don't automatically assume that they intentionally lied. So a lie is a deliberate intention to deceive, to deceive whereas a false statement is simply an incorrect statement. We make the basic assumption from people that they did not intend to deceive and so we approach them so somebody uh, can report them on the website if you go to the contact form which is one of the things one of the things that you can go to and report a violation of the pro-truth pledge now a violation is not a big deal because again it can be somebody can make a mistake i can make a mistake anyone can make a mistake that's fine And then we go to the public figure. If it's an actual violation, we investigate the violation. If it's an actual violation, if it is a factual misstatement, we would go to the public figure and ask the public figure to retract the statement and clarify the statement or so on. And we've had a number of uh, times when this happened. So, for example, uh, Michael Smith, who is a candidate for the U.S. Congress in Idaho, made a statement in his Facebook sharing a tweet from Donald Trump 
criticizing disabled children in public school classrooms. And that tweet wasn't in Donald Trump's tweet feed. So either Donald Trump deleted it or it was photoshopped to look like Donald Trump's feed. So then after talking about that with Michael Smith, he uh, edited his post to say that he's no longer sure that this is an actual tweet from Donald Trump. And it had 18 shares before he edited it because he's a candidate for Congress. So, you know, he has, has a big name. So that's really important. That's exactly the kind of outcome we want. Now, if after a number of efforts and uh, conversations with a public figure, she would not be willing to re retract the statement, then that's when we would go public with this situation. We would uh, have a media release to all the media, let's say Michael Smith's congressional district that he's running for Congress. Then we would send an action alert to all the people who signed the pro-truth pledge in Michael Smith's congressional district asking them to tweet to Michael Smith, to email him, to call him, protest his office, to get him to retract his statement, and we'd list him as in contempt of the Pro-Truth Pledge on the Pro-Truth Pledge website. And eventually, if he doesn't change, retract the statement, we'd uh, remove his name from the Pro-Truth Pledge list and ask him to take down any indicators that he signed the Pro-Truth Pledge. So that's the kind of repercussion mechanism for anyone who takes it. So it's a pretty big reputational penalty for somebody who takes it and doesn't retract a statement that is clearly false. Mm, very good. Realistically, how far do you think this can get? I mean, in terms of changing society for the better? So it's a good question. That depends on whether people go and sign up. You know, that's uh, it's a work in progress. The more people go and I can tell you that the more people go and sign up, the more impact it has. So here in Columbus, where I live, we have a certain amount of people, I think something like 300 people signed up. And uh, before, so we started approaching public figures, and a few public figures took it in Columbus, but before we had this number of private citizens signed up. But after we had around 300 private citizens signed up, and we can go to political officials and tell them, hey, here's how many of your constituents want you to sign the pledge. Well, you know, 300 citizens can make a difference in an election. Uh, and so we got quite a bit more public figures signing up after we had 300 private citizens sign up. So we definitely have clear demonstration that the more private citizens sign up, the more public figures are willing to sign up. I And there are a number of prominent public figures who have already signed up when we immediately approach them. People like Peter Singer, Steven Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, Michael Shermer, uh, Gary McClelland, like I mentioned, and many others. When we don't have that many current private citizens signed up, we have about 4,000. And so in order to get more public figures to sign up, we need as many private citizens to take a minute of their time to go to protruthpledge.org and cast a vote for truth. We have a broken system. And I'm asking everyone to be part of the solution and not part of the problem and go and take the pledge. Excellent. Another technical question, though, um, because it all, all sounds wonderful. And uh, I do encourage everyone to, to take the pledge. But what happens afterwards? I mean, uh, it is translated into several different languages as well. So you can take the pledge in different countries or in your own language. Who will be monitoring your actions afterwards? And because then it means that um, if someone takes it here in Hungary, 
obviously their statements their uh, activities need to be monitored in hungarian so do you have a network of people who actually do that monitor kind of monitoring so we have a reporting network this is based on the principle of the better business bureau so we are not guaranteeing you know I'm, by by we I, I mean kind of I'm one of the co-founders of the Proud Truth Pledge. What we do is we function like the Better Business Bureau, which functions on the violation reporting violations principle. So people who sign the pledge or who didn't sign the pledge, we have a number of people reporting violations who didn't sign the pledge. So people who are not pledge takers who go and say, hey, this person signed the Proud Truth Pledge. Uh, she has it on her website. She made a misstatement. So let me go and report it. So. What we rely on is people going to us and reporting violations, and then we investigate the violations. That's kind of our commitment, to investigate violations of the pro-truth pledge. So the more people there are who report, who observe these public figures who take the pro-truth pledge and report on any violations, the more violations we can catch. And so this is uh, the essential principle of it. Any public figure, in order to get benefit from the pro-truth pledge, needs to talk about the pro-truth pledge, needs to say, hey, I signed the pro-truth pledge. I am more credible than this other politician or this other talk show host or this other community leader or this other religious official or so on, you know, anyone who didn't sign the pro-truth pledge. And then people are saying, well, hey, what is this pro-truth pledge that you're talking about? Let me go and look it up. Oh, you know, you can report violations of the pro-truth pledge. That's interesting. What does that mean? Let me investigate it. So the more reputation somebody tries to get through talking about the pro-truth pledge, the more they have to be held accountable themselves, the more they're going to be held accountable. So the more committed they will be to the pro-truth pledge, which is the beauty of this sort of virtuous cycle mechanism. And that's the essence of how the pro-truth pledge works. You get a reputation only by talking about it, only by making it visible on your own venues, and by making it visible, you commit yourself to it more because people can report you for violating it. Cool. That sounds good. So I I can see that your books are available on Amazon. Is that the best way to find your? And it's it's also as eBooks. It looks like. Oh, they're both uh, eBooks and hard hardbacks, hard copies. Very good. Yep. Uh, so you can find my books on Amazon, the Truth Seekers Handbook. A science-based guide is available in both digital format and print format on Amazon. You can get it there. So you can take the pledge at protruthpledge.org. And uh, again, I invite everyone to take a minute to take the pro-truth pledge and be part of the solution. We are facing a systematic issue. Systematically, our system of information is broken. And the only way that we can fix it is by changing making a movement to change the situation. The Pro-Truth Pledge allows us to coordinate all the people who care about fixing this issue in a behavioral science, research-based manner. So I invite everyone to go take a minute, go to protruthpledge.org and sign up. And I welcome the two of you to sign it as well. Absolutely. We will, uh, we will cl- I'll click on the link right now. Excellent. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that's... That's a really good initiative, and uh, I'm kind of an optimist myself, so I I do feel like it's it's badly needed for society to be to be changed. Uh, so I 
I wish you all the success with this project and we are trying to to help in our own ways um, to spread the word. So Gleb Tsipurski, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a and, pleasure. And hope we can uh, we can meet up in person at some point somewhere on the globe. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank Goodbye. you. Bye-bye. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project either from a, s- a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, our guest is David Fitzgerald. David is from America, actually, and he is an author of the books Nailed and the Complete Heretics Guide of Western Religion series that includes a book called Jesus Mething in Action. Uh, he is an atheist and a former member of the board of the San Francisco Atheist and San Francisco branch of the Center for Inquiry. He is is also a former director and a founder of the first atheist film festival in San Francisco. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Elena. Great to be here. Uh, good to have you. Yeah, it's great Thanks, to Francis. have you. <laughs> so I met you, D- D- David, a few, couple of years ago in one of your European events, and I was trying to rack my brain to remember what event that was. It was in Sheffield. Sheffield, the Sheffield Freethought um, event that they had a couple of years ago. I think 2015, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. Um, um, what was your experience of the European scene? Because I know that you're a very prominent atheist uh, activist in America, but um, what, do you, what did you think of the European scene um, in, in that regard? I was really knocked out by it. I mean, it's Sheffield is, is kind of has a joke about being like the New Jersey of, of Britain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where, um, but the, the college was brilliant. The kids were brilliant. Um, we had a fantastic time there. And I was so impressed by how j- just the, the, the level of discourse and how informed everybody was about issues. It, it seems like it's so much more part of the mainstream in Europe than it is in America. Am I right in assuming, uh, because that was my feeling too when I went to some of the conferences in America, that um, religion isn't big of an issue in Europe, as big of an issue in Europe as it is in America? Yeah, I think so. I think I think the internet's slowly starting to change that, especially down on the college level. Uh, when I was working for the Secular Student Alliance, the last figures I remember reading was in around 2006, 2007. And at that time, the, the current college level um, of, of kids, I shouldn't say kids, of, of college students, um, was almost in perfect third splits between openly religious, spiritual, but not religious, whatever that means, and openly secular. And our numbers just kept going higher and higher. I'm sure it's much higher now um, than it was uh, 10 years ago. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me to, to watch that, how much of a sea change there's been in America especially since 9-11. I think from 9-11 to the end of the Obama administration was sort of a golden age for atheism. Um, and I don't think we realized it at the time until now that we're in the dark ages again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but still, it's it's rather encouraging. It is. And, um, and as bad as it is now, and it's truly bad here, um, I have so much more hope with the next administration, whatever, whoever the president is next, um, the next change of president, I should say, because it's, I'm not talking about President Pence or uh, any of the other current GOP leaders. I think the Republicans have really shown who they are, and they pretty much destroyed their own base to the point that um, it's kind of regalvanized the left again. And I think that's going to be good for atheism. Yeah.
Yeah, we you recently heard about the election in in Alabama. Uh, yes, I was so pleased and delighted. It's been so long since I've gotten good political news, you know, waiting for me. Uh, it was that I really needed that shot in the arm. Yeah, I was just expecting to be, you know, disappointed yet again, but actually this time it went the right way. Yeah. The, and how I, I meant to ask you that, what's the state of secularization in Europe now? I mean, is is it as fragmented as it is in America? Well, I was just going to say, actually mention something, and I don't know, uh, Pontus, if you're aware of, about, uh, of it, but the Humanists UK um, organization here, they still fighting against faith schools mm. and they still running. They, they have a very live and very active 2018 faith school campaign appeal um, and uh, because they, it's still a thing, which completely baffles me because... Nobody really particularly cares about religion in England, as far as I can see. I, I don't. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not very prominent. But yet in schools, it's been now. It's a real issue, you know. Uh, kids are being taught prayers and, and all these kind of you know BS. Is that because of like minority religious groups, like you know Sikhs and and Muslims and and well, uh, Hasidic I, Jews? I think that well, I think it's more Christian uh, fundamentalist, yeah. really. Yes, it, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly right. They they you know the um, traditional um, gotcha re- religion yeah. that that is based here, yeah. um, and so. It doesn't matter that we perceive like we're a very secular society here in UK. It still is an issue. An issue. Um, what about uh, Sweden? Uh, uh, well, Pontus? I'm I, sure no, I, you know, it's, it's very, very secular. But still, sometimes, uh, you know, it, it comes out that certain private schools are doing something very religious. But the, mm. the, 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 the positive thing is that when that comes out, it, it generates an outcry among the public. Yes. So, so the... the, the, the you know, the atheists have it much easier here than, than <laughs> in the you. U.S. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. I, I'm very thankful I live in California, especially in San Francisco right now, yeah. um, because if worse comes to worse, I, I feel like California will just secede from the union mm. and, and be fine. But um, that's how bad it's gotten in America with the, the current, you know, administration. <laughs> So it's often said that uh, you know atheists read the Bible much more carefully than 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 religious people <laughs> do. But uh, so, how did you come to research uh, the existence of Jesus and, and and write about that topic and try to look at it from a historical point of view? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's exactly it. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Around 2000 or so, it never had even crossed my mind that there was no Jesus. Uh, just like, oh, of course there was Jesus. Never even thought about it. Um, I didn't even know there was any kind of undercurrent of suspicion about that fact. Um, and it wasn't until um, I started getting curious about how much of the, our gospel story reflects the real Jesus and how much of it's just legendary embellishments that occur over time. I have a quick question. Can we say bullshit on this? Absolutely. You can say fuck. It's just fucking legendary bullshit. (laughs) You can totally say that. (laughs) Um, And and so that's where my troubles began is is just looking, trying to parse out what was real and and false about the, the Jesus legend. And it was amazing how almost instantly, as soon as I started that, I ran into all these red flags realizing there were scholars out there, had been you know, whole schools of scholars over time that had questioned whether there was a Jesus at all, which I thought was ridiculous. That's, that, that sounded crazy to me until I started looking at the state of our evidence, how much evidence it was, how dodgy it was, and how little of it, it there was. 
And long story short, and this has been going on for 17 years now, I don't see how there could have been a guy named Jesus anymore. Even a mere mundane, dime a dozen Galilean traveling preacher anymore. I don't even see how there could have been that guy. Not that there's anything implausible about such a figure. It's just that when you look at what our evidence is for this guy, everything points back to all these uncoordinated movements talking about a celestial Jesus, not anybody who actually lived on the planet at all. Um, well, I uh, as, when I think about this topic of Jesus' existence, I think back to where I when I was kind of a believer, you know, back in the day, whatever. And um, at the time, I thought, well, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus existed. It's like a metaphor for certain things that he's done, good things that can be used as example, blah de blah de blah. Yeah. But um, why? So. You know, after and, doing, you know, and increasingly that's going to be the, the Christian uh, response to it, because mm-hmm. the fact is, even if there was a Jesus, a real historical person who lived in the first century, for all extents and purposes, our evidence is such that everything we know about that guy comes from unreliable sources talking decades after the fact and disagreeing with each other about it. So for, mm-hmm. as Robert Price has pointed out, For all extents and purposes, there isn't a Jesus anymore, even if there ever was one to begin Mm. with. Well, can you just, David, can just run through some of the maybe uh, bigger argument uh, arguments for the fact that Jesus never existed? Sure. And in fact, uh, let me just break it down real quickly. I I wound up writing a book called Nailed, uh, 10 Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All. That book took on the top 10 ways that the official Christian story of Jesus just doesn't pass the reality test. Things like that eyewitnesses wrote the Gospels and that the Gospels agree with each other um, and they're all corroborated, sorry, that they're all corroborated by history and by current events um, and what we know about the first century. None of those things are true and none of them could be further from the truth, actually. Ever, the, the myth of Jesus is such that the origins of Christianity are are don't reflect the reality at all. And if things had been a little different for 300 years or so, Christianity was just this socially invisible little cultlet. Um, and if things had gone a slightly different uh, turn in the third century, we wouldn't have it anymore. We'd be talking about Mithras now or it's any other savior gods of the time. Mm-hmm. Um what happened when I wrote Nailed was um, I made all these arguments like this, you know, pointing out that our our sources for Jesus are not that great, and they're all long after the fact. And I kept getting pushback from certain atheists who said, well, yeah, yeah, we know that's the Jesus of faith. Yeah, we knew that was fake, but there really was a Jesus, and we have good evidence for there, there to be a Jesus. And that's not true. That's completely not true. I'd be fine with it if it was, but the fact is— when you look at our sources for Jesus, the first thing the first thing you want to say to anybody who tries to tell you they know what Jesus said or did is, well, who told you that? What's our source for that? How good are those sources? Can we trust those sources? So when I wrote the follow-up book, Jesus Mything in Action, that's what I tackled first. Is like, let's turn this question around. Let's say there is a Jesus. What do we know about him and how much confidence can we have in what we know about him? Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's play devil's advocate here because it's yeah. a good phrase to, to use in yeah. this term and say, <laughs> what, what would be the best arguments if you would try to take the other position that he did exist, actually? Right. Um, probably the, the one that I keep hearing Christians come to is the fact that in Paul's writings, he refers to a guy who he 
calls James the brother of the Lord. That's probably the closest we get to any kind of explicit identification of Jesus as somebody who lived. But again, it's very problematic because just a few verses later, he's talking about people like James, like John, like Peter, these guys who were supposed to be Jesus's friends and family and his number one disciples and the founders of the church. And he's talking to them as if he doesn't know who they are. They're not real Christians. They bring in false believers. He doesn't give in to them for a minute. It's it's mind-blowing that they are saying that this verse is supposed to be talking about a guy who's supposed to be Jesus's brother. Mm. That's kind of the tip of the iceberg on that particular one argument. So, so help us a little bit here, sure. uh, just uh, on time-wise. When did Paul live? Was he you know, way back enough that he could have met James, for instance. No, he didn't meet Jesus, I, I'm pretty sure, but maybe he could have met James. Right. Well, and the and the the this, the time frame for for Paul is he died sometime in the 50s or 60s, uh, probably the early mid 60s. Yeah. So it's possible. It's totally possible yeah. if these guys were real people. Yeah. Um, what seems to be the case, though, is that these people who were the the so-called pillars of the church were known to be leaders of the Jerusalem church. And later, when the gospel uh, was written, Mark's gospel, our very first gospel, he went back to the letters of Paul and plucked out names from that to become characters in his book. And when you look at Christianity before Mark writes his gospel and Christianity after Mark writes his gospel, they're very different animals. And Jesus is a very different animal in, in those two time frames. Hmm. Wow. But you talked a little bit about what you call the celestial Jesus. Could you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah. It looks like the further we go back in Christianity, the less they're talking about a guy who was meant to have been a preacher who wandered in Jerusalem and had an actual biography. And they're more talking about a figure who's a divine son of a, of God, just like all the other Hellenistic mystery faiths of the time, where you have demigods and you have uh, savior gods that are half mortal and half divine. It's really interesting that Christianity comes around after all these other movements have started. Um, in fact, Richard Carrier's pointed out that if you look at what a mystery faith is and you ask, what's a mystery faith? If you're, if you're in ancient times and asking someone who's a member of that, what they are, and then ask them, what, okay, what would a Jewish version of this mystery faith look like? You've got Christianity. It fits all the criteria for that. Um, and in fact, well, there's even hints of that, even in our, our own New Testament, Paul uses a lot of mystery faith terminology. Jesus in the, the Gospels says things that are very strange if Jesus is meant to be who Christians have always said he is. Uh, in Mark 4.11, he, he has him talking to his disciples saying, now, I'm teaching you this in secret and in parables so that anybody who's listening outside, they'll hear the parable, but they won't understand. Otherwise, they would turn from their sins and be saved. That makes no sense whatsoever if Jesus came on earth to save us. It makes perfect sense if he's talking about a mystery faith, that you come in here and you learn the secret wisdom, and it's all parables for these higher truths, because that's what mystery faiths were. There was many of them throughout the ancient world, and it looks like Christianity was an attempt to build a Jewish version of that. Mm -hmm. And the further we go back in Christianity, the more we see how it's unorganized, 
disagrees with themselves each, with each other and its rival Christian preachers, and their Christ is somebody who's not on earth, couldn't be on earth, and is compared to people on earth. He's somebody who was at the, there at the beginning of time. He's somebody who will judge the living and the dead, but he's not somebody who grew up in a manger in Bethlehem and was betrayed by one of his followers and was crucified by the Romans. We don't get that Jesus at all. But on the other hand, you know, on on the on the need of secrecy, would you say if there was a cult, a, you know, a new cult going, and there was a, this, you know, guru or whatever you call him, <laughs> who's trying to build a new thing, wouldn't it make sense for him to try to keep it a little bit secret because there were maybe persecutions and stuff? Well, the funny thing is, there were perse- persecutions of believers around the time that the Gospels were being written. But there weren't persecutions like that during the time the Gospels are set in. Um, And in fact, the funny thing is, uh, biblical scholars have referred to the way Mark's Jesus is so cagey about himself as the secret teachings of Jesus. Um, Whereas when you get to the Gospel of John, which is much later, Jesus is walking around he might as well have I am God printed on his t-shirt because he tells everybody that he doesn't care. It's amazing. He wasn't stoned for blasphemy right out of the gate, five minutes into his story. But the fact is, the funny thing is you're, because you're touching on some other interesting things. It wasn't illegal to be an apocalyptic preacher in those times. It wasn't even against Jewish law, let alone Roman law to declare yourself to be the Messiah. We had several Messiahs popping up in that time. Mm. And part of the reason is that is because they had been reinterpreting prophecies, rebooting failed prophecies to make sense that the Messiah was going to be coming later and later and later. And the early first century was one of those times they landed on, Mm. which is one of the reasons that the Gospels are set at that time and not during the time they're actually written, which is right after the the war with Rome and around the the first century 70s. So, David, why do you think this is an important question, whether Jesus actually existed um, or not? Well, the funny thing is, I mean, it, it's really not, and it's not an, a very important question. It's only as important as Jesus is. Um, it's no skin off my nose if there was a real Jesus. I'll still be very happy atheist. It's not like Christianity is going to start making sense all of a sudden Mm -hmm. if there was a real Jesus. Um, But for me, it's fascinating to see where Christianity really did come from and how many different cultures and movements were involved with it. And I don't think we can know where Christianity really came from until we face up to the fact that it started with an imaginary founder. Mm. And here's the thing I love about the the argument. Not only is it fascinating just from a historical standpoint, uh, the story just fascinates me, but as a a secular humanist, everything we learn in this back and forth between the mythicist on one side and the historicist on the other side helps us call the bluff of anybody who says they know how Jesus wants you to behave or think or vote. And that's a huge issue. That's something (laughs) we all should know. 
Absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a mass, it's a massive issue in America, as far as I can tell, because Jesus's name is used left, right and center by your political figures. And um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's I think it's well, it's I think it's a bad idea to to talk to Christians and try to argue to them that there's no Jesus because they will not give an inch on that. They can't they can't even accept it for argument's sake. Well, let's say you're right. They can't do that. Their brains don't work that way. No, but. It's good for them to know that atheists are debating this and that atheists are torn, not because they want there to be a, a no Jesus. They don't want you to, I don't want you to be a Jesus atheist, but um, we have to be Jesus agnostics at the very least. And I, I joke in the book that I want you to be militant Jesus agnostics. Sort of someone asks you if you think there was a Jesus, you say, no, I don't. I don't know if there was a Jesus or not. And neither do you. <laughs> No, so actually, there's an interesting. You've written a book about uh, Mormons as well, right? Or, or yes, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to see because you could see there we. It's so close historically that we can actually see how a new religion was was you know, manufactured. In, in my it's so true. In my so opinion, true. and you and you, it, and yeah, you know well, the historical data of who did it and when he did it and what he wrote and who he met. No, but my question is that if, well, having Mormon as uh, an example, could we have an opinion of how Christianity did arise if it wasn't for Jesus? Was it all something that Paul invented or what do you think? That is a great question. I Here's the thing. There's so many different ways it could have started. The one that makes the most sense to me is that it began as a, a series of movements that were primarily blends of Hellenistic philosophy and Judaism and trying to make a Jewish form of the mystery faiths. But they were uncoordinated movements. They didn't have a single leader. It's interesting to think about Paul. I, he, he clearly didn't invent the religion because it was there before him. But he's the only figure for almost the entire first century of Christianity whose writings they saved. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think of all the people they could have saved the writings of, that any of the disciples, you know, because the books we have in our Bibles, they are almost certainly uh, forgeries, uh, later forgeries mm. in their names. But for some reason, they decided to keep the the writings of this one branch of, of many different competing Christ cults. And what's more is half of what's attributed to Paul is also forgery, which came later too. So there's so much hidden about the early source material for Christianity. It's fascinating to, to, to know what would be on the, the garbage bin if we had it. We're lucky that we still have the Gospel of Mark, in fact, because both Matthew and Luke base their Gospels on it. And in their own way, they're new and improved versions. They weren't setting out to write their own Gospel they were each setting out to write the gospel, the one true gospel. In fact, it's funny, Luke starts out his gospel by saying, you know, so many people are writing gospels this, this, these days. <laughs> it seemed a good idea for me to, to investigate the truth and give you the real story. So he's implying that he's the only one telling the truth, even though what he's doing is taking Mark's gospel and and fussing with it. And I would argue that he takes Matthew's gospel, too, the parts he likes, and, and fusses with that, too. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> so true. You know, it's another thing, though. Speaking of Mormonism, um, I mean, Mormonism is fascinating. In the book, I call it steampunk Scientology, because as you say, 
it's completely made up and there's no two ways about it. It's it's like Dungeons and Dragons. It's so Absolutely. detailed and, yeah. and, and weird beard. I just love it. But one of the things I found out as a side effect of looking into the Jesus study is how many times Buddhist scholars came up to me and ex-Muslim scholars came up to me and said, you know what, we're having these same debates in our circles, too, about whether the Buddha was a real person and whether Muhammad was a real person. And that blew my mind. Buddha, I could see. Muhammad, you're kidding me. Wow. And then when I asked them why, all of a sudden it made a lot more sense because the evidence for Jesus and the evidence for Muhammad are kind of in the same situation. It's like the story grows further and further and starts much later than we expect it to. Hmm. Wow, the plot has thickened, eh? So we we have to oh. we have to watch that space. <laughs> so you're gonna write a book about Islam now, or as soon as I get my 24/7 high security budget, sure, I will jump right <laughs> on that. Until then, Scientology and Islam are the one true faith, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they're, they're no <laughs> <laughs> David said it here first. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, is there anything else um, you want to um, mention about the um, the Jesus myth before we kind of conclude? Yeah. Um, well, sure. Actually, if I can pimp out some of the books I've got going. Sure. So yeah. Nailed, Nailed is the first book. It's sort of the intro on why the Christian story fails. The follow-up book to that is in the series, The Complete Heretic's Guide to Western Religion. Book one is The Mormons. Book two, three, and four are Jesus mything in action. I didn't mean it to be three books, but uh, it just was such a big topic that rather than making one giant size book, I made three reader size, reader friendly books instead. Yeah, and where can, where can we find them? Where can we find the books? The, uh, the Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And if you really are desperate to get a um, uh, a signed uh, book plate or something from me, find me on Facebook or uh, shoot me an email at everybodylovesdave at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> it's so frightfully expensive to mail books to, to Europe from America. It's it's, it's horrible. But um, it's pretty easy for me to, to send a book plate if anybody wants that um, mm. autographed. And the next book in the series, I don't know how many of you, I know Jelena has seen it, um, my talk on sex and violence in the Bible. Yeah, I was I was part of that. Mm. You were part of that, yeah. Um, it was my it was my five minutes of fame. <laughs> your five minutes of fame. It's book. Uh, it's called Sexy Violence, Violent Sex, The Weird Ass Morality of the Bible, and that talk is going to become the next book in this the Complete Heretics Guide series. Oh, great! And on a completely unrelated Jesus note, my wife and I are working on a science fiction trilogy that uh, book one is coming out next month at the end of next month Ooh. from uh, Titan Publishers in the UK. So a good European publisher that it's a science fiction trilogy called Time Shards. And I'm super excited about that. Wow. We'll link to that because I know we've got a lot of science enthusiasts, sci-fi enthusiasts who listen to the show. So yeah, I'm one. Yeah. Yay. Yes, I, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that Pontus. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a sort of a time travel post-apocalyptic story. It's got a nice different spin on it and um, really interesting characters, really interesting situations. It's just a fun, adventurous romp. I'm, I'm really looking forward to pimping that out later. Wow. Yeah. My wife points out that people die horribly in it. It's not a <laughs> <All right. laughs> Don't give up. Don't give up the ending. <laughs> no Good spoilers. sell. Yeah. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. 
Well, thanks you so much for your time, David. It's been a pleasure as always, and um, in, in an interesting subject. And like you said, it's uh, this this Jesus uh, histor historical Jesus figure um, is a very controversial subject, even within you know the atheist community. So um, it's always good to bring it up and <laughs> challenge challenge people. All right. Well, Spaziba and Tusen Tak, and I will talk Ooh. to you guys soon. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, David. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, guys, I have, I have no idea how I'm going to live my life after this. So. Well, I'll tell, tell you what. where I am at. Um, I, have my, I had my doubts about this Jesus guy for a long time. So <laughs> when somebody like David comes along and does the research and provides evidence and, and talks about historical um, lack of evidence and supporting documentations... I, I go kind of, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, that's obviously not, it's not going to make me less or more happy. It's just a thing, you know, that I, I kind of suspected that possibly is the case. Um, who we really need to convince are Christians, really. Yeah, but they, I mean, they won't listen to that argument well, he, at they, all. They won't, but like, by the way, this dude you're referring to, he probably never existed. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, David did point out that it's important, even though the Christians won't listen to, that they know that there is a discussion going on about it. Maybe some of them will, yeah, eh, I don't know, tweak something. Yeah, you know, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of questions about it. Um, um, there is um, um, a British guy as well. I I uh, heard him talk at Brighton Humanists in the pub, mm -hmm. and the guy's name is Kenneth hum Humphreys, and uh, he gave a very very convincing talk. On, on that very topic and um, and I I yeah left the place um actually thinking yeah it's probably true but obviously we cannot prove a negative so we can we cannot say that yeah he never existed we can talk that uh, again, he, again he, yeah he never had to exist for all this to happen <laughs> no but but still he is a, a central figure. Yeah, to the whole, yeah. to the whole religious, and I can't help but think, you know, it was just a matter of being in the right time, right place. But, you know, all these books came together. And, yeah, yeah, well, made up books, and um, and then and then we we ended up with this huge uh, yeah. movement. Um, yeah, what were the chances of other people, other gods coming up to surface instead? It, it was just such yeah. a, it's just potluck. Yeah. But but especially when you start paying attention to the the development of uh, of the gospels, so like, oh yeah, these guys really stole from one another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. they were copy pastes and there was uh, so, <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. Man, it's it's it becomes interesting even if you accept the basic idea of Jesus having existed, because. Okay, but um, what if you can prove that he never resurrected? What if you can prove... So, uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen the movie The Body. No? No. It's a crappy movie, but uh, <laughs> with Antonio Banderas. But, but the, the basic idea is that, I think it, in Jerusalem, uh, they find a body, uh, they, they find a tomb, and... All the different signs, the excavations are going on, and everything points to the direction of it being the body of Christ. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. 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 So if 
what if what if that happens yeah. and the interesting part of the the movie is is how the the Vatican reacts and 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 how everyone reacts to that <laughs> it's it's amazing so this is it's such a basic idea the resurrection of Christ that if if there is a proof that Christ was still there wow my my guess it wouldn't matter i mean if if it re- if that was found in real life mm. it wouldn't matter because that's not why people are religious they they yeah they you're right you're talk about right. these things but it's deeper than that it's yeah. more you know facts doesn't matter so yeah Too yeah bad. because yeah it's not, not how religion works exactly you're right mm-hmm. you're right you're right no they would probably stick to it Okay. And I believe we will be doing a truth pledge on a different note. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. As the ESP organization. I already have done it. I did it during the interview, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You were quite eager. (laughs) I was quite eager. But we're going to do it individually and as a podcast as well, as an organization. We will take the pro-truth pledge. And uh, we encourage everybody else to do so too. And especially, we are quite closely connected to organizations, skeptical organizations. We could try and and make that happen for those organizations as well. I'm not saying that, for example, the Hungarian Skeptic Society will take the pledge because I'm not the one deciding that. So we we have to make a decision as a board. But still, it's a it's a it's a good idea. Yeah, it it doesn't cost you anything, huh? but. Uh, if if everyone takes a pledge, we kind of elevate the standards uh, standards of discussion in our society, and I think that is a very important step forward. Mm. Yeah, so I do encourage everyone to 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 take it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but uh, but um, I think it's uh, it's about time to to conclude the show. But uh, since we've talked about uh, Jesus and 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 everything, happy I holidays. Think- yeah, that, that's that's where I was going to. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's interesting to say that to to a skeptical audience. You know, I I, I did that. Uh, we had a couple of years ago. We had a skeptics in the pub, and I was leading it. And I was saying, well, okay, let's not do it too serious this time. Just talk about how it's okay actually to enjoy the holidays, even if you are a skeptic. You can enjoy the the sentiment of meeting with friends and meeting with your family and take it easy and, you know, light the candle and blah, 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 without <laughs> leaving in the angels and stuff. And two people got so mad at me, they stormed out of the room. And oh, dear. W- and one of them sent me hate mail for a couple of weeks. <laughs> no. But I still maintain that you know yeah. regardless how let's, you feel about religion all... how you I feel about so. those things uh, it's okay to take the holidays off spend some time with the family and um and you can send me the hate mail left afterwards yeah you know <laughs> it's it's the tradition is so strong in our family that we stand around stand up all of us around the tree on christmas eve mm-hmm. we start singing christmas carols yeah and in the last couple of years, every single time it ended with a great laughter. So, so like we burst, <laughs> yeah, we why all not? burst out laughing. But but somehow we still try to keep that tradition up. Hmm? And there is there is a little little poem as well as well that we we say together that ca- came from my grandmother. 
and uh, I I kind of I, I am kind of emotionally attached to this tradition, even though I I I find the original idea and the whole the whole thing the origin of this thing ridiculous, but still, it's something, you know, white wine in the sun. Yeah, or no, that's <laughs> or you know. George Robb has said we can use every all the music we want from his catalog, so maybe we should play uh, uh, "I Don't Believe in Christmas" with uh, George Robb, or at least a part of it. You know, I think it wouldn't be a bad way to finish the the pre-holidays episode. All right, so yeah, let's play the song from George Robb. And before we do that, uh, I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And I'd like to thank our lovely audience for for tuning in. And happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Uh, Happy holidays. Regardless of you believing or not believing in Jesus Christ. Until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. time this time of year away the way we spread good cheer and wonder if it matters one bit why we're nicer my advice sir enjoy what the day brings despite stories of kings relish the things that you give and are given Every time this time of year I explain in ways plain and clear To my relief I have no belief in the reason the season but I'm one who defends if these means to these ends result in smiling friends who once were strangers where's the danger I don't believe in Christmas But I love it anyway Every time this time of year I voice a voice some don't hold dear And proudly shout despite my doubt Season's greetings at family meetings And I still can enjoy Like when I was a boy Unwrapping every toy that I get And each one I'm giving This is living I don't believe in Christmas But I 
but I love it anyway. The best of intentions never equal the gifts that you got. With a season so perfect, I'll forgive that its reason is not. Time this time of year, I love the love both far and near, and wonder if it matters one bit why we're nicer. Please be nicer, just be nicer. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe 311 <laughs> that would be, okay. So that would be actually you exactly you six wish. years from now. Hundred and four. Hundred and four. Four years from now. Sorry, I shouldn't. Hundred and four. Is it hundred and four? Hundred and four. Hundred and four. Who says we need to to uh, number them chronologically? We could just do <laughs> just <laughs> whatever them. number. Start with nine 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 and count back nine nine eight. You're listening to the episode that is definitely over a hundred. <laughs> We, we vaguely remember it's over 100. The vaguely, yeah. Some, <laughs> somewhere above 100, I think. All right. So. And he is a... F- co- and he is a... Co- sorry. And he's a... Co- oh, no. And he is a co-founder of the pro... I'm, I don't believe this.